we have the power to ensure our communities grow together and thrive. That within us and with God, because we do mobilize from a Christian base, we have power to build the just world we desire. But we're not alone, and together we can see that there are equitable opportunities for all types of people, mm-hmm. that none are excluded on the basis of what they look like or where they're from or how they, how they identify or who they love. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that when communities come together to recognize, honor, and protect the image of God in each other and the earth, we are better for it. Hi, friends. So good to be back here. I know that it's been a little over a month since I uploaded a new episode, but today's episode is well worth the wait. I'll be uh, chatting with Sandy Ovalle, a native of Mexico City who is currently serving as a director of campaigns and mobilizing at Sojourners. Uh, Sandy leads a Sojo Action team, which is building a community dedicated to putting its faith in action for social justice. She holds an MA in theology from Fuller Seminary, she loves writing poetry, and within that, thinking about the complexities of living between worlds as an immigrant Latina. So in today's episode, Sandy and I chat about those complex realities, including her mobilizing work at Sojourners and her journey to becoming an American citizen. Now as Sandy spoke, I thought a lot about the prayer of Oscar Romero, it's one of my favorite prayers, and I thought I'd read it to you guys today just to get your heart and mind ready for everything that she has to say. And so the prayer goes, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said, no prayer fully expresses our faith, no confession brings perfection, no pastoral visit brings wholeness, no program accomplishes the church's mission, no set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Amen. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Sandy and she's going to share a little bit about herself but I'm really excited I wish we could do this in person but um, maybe yeah maybe next time uh, you come to LA or or when I'm in DC which I have to make a trip out there Uh, anyway so I'm really excited for our conversation Um, Sandy and I we've we've connected through the internet for a little bit but we finally got a chance to hang out in person at the justice conference and it was a lot of fun. We had some really good conversations. So, Sandy, if you want to talk a little bit about yourself, you want to tell us about your spiritual background, um, yeah, where you're from, uh, and just all of that. Sure. It's so good to be with you. And yes, wish we could do it in person too, yeah. so we wouldn't be, or I wouldn't be so cold in <laughs> DC. But um, yeah, I am originally from Mexico City. I was born and raised there, and then. At 16, got the crazy idea of moving to the U.S. <laughs> and joining my brother, who was out in uh, Denton study, studying. And yeah, I think spiritually, my family was not particularly religious, per se. We weren't people that went to church every Sunday or... Um, we were behind, like in Mexico, there's a lot of the people around us were Catholic. And so we were always behind on doing like our first communion. Mm-hmm. 
uh, going to catechism. <laughs> so we were like, you know, I did my first communion when I was like 11 or 12. So I was like the oldest one in yeah. <laughs> the little class with like everyone was six. But um, yeah, I think there were ways in which um, my mom had certain traditions that she carried down. And so there were like certain moments in our lives that were key like I remember Good Friday was a really big deal and so we didn't go to church but at home every Good Friday at 3 p.m. my mom and I would kneel down and she would always talk about how the sky um, gets cloudy at 3 p.m. Mm. and often it rains or often there's there's some sort of um, like the sky gets sad if you will mm. and so um and growing up like it was true we would kneel down we looked out the window and the sky was wow. um the sky was cloudy and it yeah. was you know grayish and and so I think there were a lot of practices that were instilled in me through my mom's spirituality um that was carried like very much at home very much in a um through my aunts and ankles um situations like that but we weren't a church going family at all mm. um I remember when we when I did my first communion we had a chart and every Sunday like we would go to catechism on Mondays and for every Sunday that we went to mass they would put like a little star and it was Christmas and so everyone had like the little star because they had gone to like mass during Christmas and I was like oh I I felt so bad because I was like the only one without one and so my turn was like kind of like toward the end because my last name is Sawaye and so um, so I came up and I was like, yeah, sure. We went to church and I totally lied in my like um, com- first communion, my catechism class. So um, that was like my star for the year for having gone to church. <laughs> so. That's funny. I love that because I, I feel like I've had a similar experience in that so much of my, as I reflect back on my spirituality growing up or my faith, so much of it was just carried down through just tradition and just cultural traditions and you know now I have like a deep sense of of how weighty that is and and how much power and influence is behind that you know but like kind of in the moment you're just like well yeah you you just kneel at three o'clock on good friday but now you know looking back you're like wow that was actually so meaningful right (laughs) but in the moment (laughs) there was not anything particularly spiritual like attached to it you know what I mean so yeah, so I just think that that's that's really beautiful how you can reflect on that and be like, yeah, that was like a big part of my, you know, my spiritual formation. Um, so that's kind of cool. So you said that when you were 16, you had the crazy idea of moving to the States. Can you elaborate on that? Like how, how did that idea come about? Or uh, yeah, just what was that? What was that process? Yeah, so I think there was my dad's family. It's from Nueva Rosita, Coahuila, which is closer to the border and so back when they were growing up they 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 had family like in that area and uh, eventually his parents were the first ones my, my dad's my grandparents were the first ones to move to Mexico City and my dad was actually born in Mexico City but there was always this strong tie to to the northern side of Mexico and aunts and uncles that have eventually moved to San Antonio and have been there for for some time and so it was very um very common for my dad's side of the family to visit San Antonio and be um, be traveling back and forth. And in fact, three of my aunts uh, ended up studying um, high school in the U.S. And that was just kind of part of um, what they did. My, my grandmother passed away when um, my dad was really young. So there, it was really difficult for my grandfather to take care of all six children. So, um, so I think, you know, in an attempt to help with all the load of uh, raising six children and working, he would send his daughters away to their uncles in, in San Antonio. And so mm-hmm. there was always kind of like this tradition that people were studying in in the U.S. and coming back just for high school. And and I think for, for us, my brother was the first one to leave our home. I think he was just having a really hard time adjusting in Mexico and some of his friends left for the states and he went with them and for me it was also it was also a difficult um part of our family we were going through a lot of family turmoil down in mexico city and it was really hard to take care of take care of me my parents were um splitting up and there was just a lot of um uncertainty about the future and so my brother felt like that was a place that was a little bit more stable 
and so that I could join him in the States and be with him in that. And so, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, certainly that is more stable, but right. coming to the U.S. <laughs> had its own, like, lack of stability. And, um, yeah, it was actually really difficult to come as a 16-year-old to join a 23-year-old mm. who was a college student and now had to take care of me. And, yeah, and even though I, I was raised in a bilingual school, so I was I could speak English, but coming into the U.S. was really difficult. Just there was a different accent. It was really easy for me to read and write English, but it was really difficult to actually engage in conversation. And so, like the first six months of being in the U.S. was just like miserable. Like I hardly talked to anyone. I and I just knew that I had a very thick accent, and it was just or just an accent that people ask me to repeat things like often. And it was just so hard to be repeating everything. So the first six months, it was just, um, I was quiet, like basically mm. for six months. <laughs> so. mm. Yeah. And so how was that transition from, okay, like settling in, like these first six months, I'm feeling insecure about my accent or, you know, and then kind of coming into uh, a lifestyle, coming into yourself. Like what was that? How was that transition like? Yeah, I think there were several factors, but I think one of the main ones was I'm a dancer and um, I was able to start taking dance classes in high school um, at my local school. And I think that really helped because it was another means of expression. It was another place where uh, if I could not express things with words, I, I could dance my feelings away I could uh, my frustrations or my joys um, I could express that way and I could connect with others in choreography I could connect with others in being in tune with you know whatever we were trying to perform in ways that I could not connect through words Mm. so so I think that really helped and then eventually yeah just getting more immersed into that world and being able to have really supportive professors. So I would say after class, like I think one of the first things that I had to read was like Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. And the English was just like, you know, totally different right. from what I was used to. And it was really hard for me to understand what was happening. And so I would say after after school with my English teacher and he invested a lot in my education and would just explain like what I had just read you know Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. and there was another French teacher who really I think French for me was a little easier because it was similar to to Spanish and so Mm -hmm. she really she was really fond of me as well and so I would say also after class and she would help me both with French but also with English composition and like just like learning you know English is um they all write really, really different. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, it's more, um, especially for like standardized tests, you know, mm. you had to like, have like certain writing skills that I did not have because I think the education systems are just very different in right. that sense. Mm. Um, and so things like, you know, writing with like every paragraph has one idea and mm. like this transition words and learning like all these transition words. Yeah. I remember that was like huge. And so a lot of that came actually from my French teacher. And so I think having um, teachers that just saw that I really wanted to try, but I didn't have the, I needed the support, right? right? Like I didn't have my parents or anyone else to help me in that. And my brother was was also students. So mm. they were really, um, he was working and studying and they were really key in helping me feel more confident. Um, wow. Yeah. I can, as you were, as you were saying, like that last part that like your brother was also a student and, you know, you're 16 trying to learn so many, you know, new things that you have hadn't previously learned a new way of thinking, a new way of writing, um, and not having, you know, like much familial support. Um, I can imagine that that must've been difficult. You, so I read, um, you sent me a couple pieces and this made me think of that. And one of them you talked about, and you have like a line that I, I really liked, and you talked about community as a source of power. Um, and so that made me think right now of just how you had to really rely on, I'm sure, different people like prof- or, you know teachers and things like that to empower you, uh, you know, to just live your life essentially when you first got here. Um, so what other, were there any other forms of, I guess, like, parenting or community that yeah that just offered that support or offered that sort of power 
um, that source of power when you first got here? Yeah, I think um, so. A few years later, maybe like three years later after I had arrived, I I started going to church, mm-hmm. and um, that was through a friend who um, who invited me to a Bible study, and then eventually to her church. And I think the church was was key because they were able to reflect to me what I couldn't see in myself in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I think because of the church that I joined, um, a lot of the language that was used was a language of, a language of dignity, a mm. language of, um, of people who belong to God, of people who God protects people who, people that walk, like they walk with God, people mm-hmm. that walk with God and God walks with them. And mm-hmm. so those were very, um, very key concepts. So I joined a church that was um, Spanish speaking, mm-hmm. was about 80 to 100 people when I first got there. It was really small. It was people from Mexico and Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. And um it was a Protestant church, it was Pentecostal, which was all new to me. Mm-hmm. Like I had really never in Mexico been close to a community that had a totally different worldview. Like they really oriented their lives around God. Like I always kind of saw this like God as like an extra right. part of my life. Mm-hmm. But the way that they were doing life is like, oh, they really like God is really present in everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And they because of the different situation in situations in which we were all in, like the majority um, of us in that church had left behind a large portion of our families, mm. a lot of our um, the communities that we came from. And with that, not just our families and communities, but our stories too. You know, when you come into a new country, you your story doesn't make sense. Like nobody has a context for who you are, mm. um, what your family is like, like things that are given um, back at home are not here. And so I think a lot of us were sort of in that place where nobody really knew us, except when we came into this church, we really knew each other. Mm. And and then not only did we know each other, but we also knew that God knew us. And that mm. um, that became a sense of a grounding place. You right. know, that was like, God knows us, God knows the stories, God is with us, God, God will protect us, God, God walks with us. And particularly the spirit becomes becomes very real because the spirit is God's presence in us. And that is like the most comforting thing where you can't, you know, give a hug to your mom because she's three countries away or where you can't mm. just visit your aunts because they're not here either. So mm. I think um, having the, knowing that God's, very presence is in you and that you have this community that you see like five times a week because you're like <laughs> going there <laughs> every single day because you don't have anywhere else to go you know? right, We're right. Pretty new. <laughs> yeah so you you weren't um essentially I guess churched before in Mexico so how did you decide to start attending this church yeah I think a lot of it was it, it was a source of community and it was a source of, it was a place where I didn't have to explain myself as much mm-hmm. as I had to explain myself in high school and I have to explain myself in college. I was just really well received and it was honestly like an invitation to a Bible study. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what really caught me or what really like was like so like appealing and mm-hmm. it sounds weird, but mm-hmm. um, my friend who invited me had a really, um, just a really hard trial in her life during those years and she she was in the hospital she was it was like really really hard and and the stuff that she went through was devastating and I thought like if that ever happened to me I would be undone like Mm, potentially forever (laughs) you know like it's like I I have a different moments in my life struggle with depression and so I was like I think like I don't know if I could go through what she's going through and to see that she went through that and then sort of like just her life actually kept going that was like a new concept to me I was like oh Mm. she has something that sustains her and has certain tools that allow her to keep going on. And that was what was to me very appealing. Like there's something there that 
I want to know about. And that's kind of how I started coming to that um, Bible study. And eventually, as I got to meet people, started going to their church. And the first time that I went to church, like, I just had no idea what a Pentecostal church looked like. So mm. I was like, you know, 45-minute mass, I'll, we'll just be out, we'll have breakfast afterwards. And so I, like, didn't eat anything. And, you know, three oh, hours gosh. into the service, I was like, oh, my God, nobody told me it was three hours. I'm so hungry. I could not pay attention. I was just, like, totally, like, sort of a little bit angry at my friend that she hadn't mentioned this was going to be yeah. like a three-hour meal. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's so funny. Well, but that is special. I'm glad that you were able to get involved with this community. I mean, I'm sure that that was, um, like I mentioned, that source of power, as you wrote, which I think is is so beautiful. Um, okay, so you have another, in the piece that, that I read, you have another thing here that you said that I thought was really good. And it's kind of going back to the idea of English and language, because I know that that is such a, I mean, man, that is, I mean, culture is a lot of culture shaped around language. And so I'm sure that there's like a lot of, there's so much to learn and so much to work through and make sense of. But here you wrote that, and I'll just quote you, I mostly speak English today. It is a language in which I best process my feelings. I've lived outside my parents' home for over 18 years now. In many ways, I do life so differently from my parents, my tias, tios, and primos. And yet this does not make me any less Mexican. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about that, that sort of major interruption in your life of like living in one culture, in one place, in one, you know, whatever for, for half your life, you know, and then almost starting all over again in a different sense, obviously, but, but that, um, you know, speaking English, that's your primary language right now, but you're not any less Mexican. And so talk to me a little bit about that, that dynamic of holding those two tensions. Yeah, I think um, I came at an age where I was about to become an adult, right? Mm. And so all of my adult now life, uh, my adult life now has been in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, and it has been lived between cultures, right? Like I, I went to Spanish speaking church for mm. a long time and I've had a lot of friends with whom I speak Spanish. And obviously every time I call home, I speak Spanish, and today I'm actually engaged to my fiance, whose um, preferred language is Spanish. So, mm -hmm. um, so, and also I do translations on the side, and um, and have served in many translation teams for a really long time. Mm -hmm. But there's a reality, and I don't know how to how to explain it. But I think like I just wasn't in touch with a lot of my deeper feelings when I was in Mexico, like, I think a lot of, like, um, what happened to me as I came to the U.S. was an ability to validate my feelings, to validate my preferences, to validate, uh, to validate me as an individual, mm -hmm. um, which had been much more difficult to do in Mexico, just because of our, how our structures work. Mm. And that's not to say like, there's a lot of richness in the structures and that I miss like consistently, right? Like the spontaneity of just being able to be a part of each other's lives and dropping any time of the day. Right, right. You know, like I really miss that, right? Like it's mm. like, I miss like on the weekends where I have no plans, like that I have, no, I don't have to make plans in Mexico, right? Like right. I can just show up to my aunt's house and mm. I would be gladly welcomed and there would probably be food for me. So mm. Um, like I really miss that kind of um, opportunity to be to be in that community but I think something that I was able to do by being a little bit removed from uh, my community was to have a little bit more validation for my own individual experience mm -hmm. that's not to say that I couldn't have accomplished that over there it just didn't happen over there because I was here right so right. And because of the set of set of circumstances and friends that I had here that were very validating of of whatever feelings whatever experiences I was having and so I think a lot of those things started to happen in English <laughs> so mm -hmm. and so there's a sense that that's really easy to express like I have the language to express that in English right. um like in a in a very succinct or very like clear way Mm -hmm. And now in Spanish, I have my gritos and I have like other things, you know, like I have expressions, <laughs> but they're it's different, you know, it's like, it's like, um, it, it's not like I can't do it in Spanish, but, but it's just like, it's different, right? Like it's attitudes, like 
I, we joked, I joked around with a friend that is like, in, in Spanish, we know cortalas, right? Like we just stop mm. speaking to a person and then just come back and then like things are fine, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like, mm-hmm. we just, we relate differently. Mm. And so I think a lot of the other stuff I learned in English, it doesn't mean, yeah, like all that to say, like it, it doesn't mean like I come now with my full self into mm. my Spanish speaking world, with my family, with my um with my friends back at home and and I'm trying to um to bring out who I am and I think that's very well received um but it's just it's it's something that I learned as I had distance and I learned it in a different language if you will right right I love that idea of like bringing all of who I am you know because all of that kind of comes together And and I'm sure at times so I'm working right now, um, you know, just on a project with, with uh, young people, with teens, and something that we've had to interview a ton of them. And so something that I've picked up so much in my interviews with a lot of these young women, and actually the two that I just interviewed are, are Mexican-American young women, and I get that sense of, like, fragmented identity. Like, I can I can see that and, and see these young people just trying to navigate becoming a whole person like that's you know it takes a while to kind of put all the pieces together and become a whole person and so what I've been hearing so much is like well this aspect of my identity and when I'm here I do this you know so it's it's just so interesting to see how that develops particularly with you know bicultural um, people in general so anyway I'm it was really interesting to hear you kind of put all that together I think that's really beautiful so on that note you also wrote this piece, or it might be in the same one that I've been asking you questions I read too, but you talked about your 32nd birthday and how it was just the most special one for you. You call it like the half and half. Um, so if you can talk to me a little <laughs> bit about that um, and what, you know, what that meant for you and why, you know, your 31st, excuse me, 32nd birthday was just what it was. Yeah, I think... I don't know if I would call it like, oh, my most special one. But I think what what happened, I think I was panicking for a minute (laughs) because I just knew it was about to come. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was uh, July 22nd, 2017. And I just knew that the next day on July 23rd um, would be the day that I would have spent most of my life in the U.S. versus in Mexico Mm -hmm. and so I kind of had this like crisis moment of like what does this mean like am I um like I've spent most of my life away from the land where I was born and um and away from from the spontaneity of dropping in people's lives and Mm -hmm. the you know away from from being able to just be in community with with everyone who has seen me grown right and so so I think it was most of or my my decision to really mark it or celebrate it was began with like that panic moment of like what does this mean is this going to change me Mm. I mean nothing happened nothing magical happened after that (laughs) there was nothing like oh you are now you know I don't know you know my ancestors didn't leave me or, you know, my blood didn't change yeah. anyway. <laughs> but but I just kind of had this, like, it's a, like I need to make, I'm also very, I'm a person of symbolism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, I need to make something, something needs to mark this in some way. Yeah. I need a ritual. And yeah. so I think for me, it's like, we have so many rituals as Latina women over our lives, and particularly for us, Mexican women and Mexican women in certain traditions, you know, there's usually you have your third birthday and and it's like a presentation birthday because um, an infant baptism is not enough for us. We must mm-hmm. go through another round of buying a fancy dress, holding a mass and inviting all of our tias and tios and primos for a large family party filled with arroz, con mole and mariachis and bounce houses if we're lucky. And we, and, and we get to do this like big celebration and, mm-hmm. and with this uh, presentation birthday, our hope is that now a more conscious three-year-old can be introduced to the faith community mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. as if people have forgotten you know that they vowed to raise her in the ways of our lord and then we do the same we do a similar ritual at 15 and then usually for a lot of women there's like another big um big birthday you know when we turn 60 or 70 where it's uh, and that's like another big marker mm-hmm. right we uh, it's a birthday when one really knows herself and we can decide whether 
we want to go to Vegas or Europe or Xochimilco or whatever we want to do. And whether we want to have a, a cater banquet in a nice venue with mariachi and a fancy dress and relive that. But for me, it felt like, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, this moment feels like one of those moments. I need one of those rituals that, yeah. that tells me like something's happening here. And so for me, um, it was that 32nd birthday that marked like half of my life is lived in one place that saw me, uh, a place where I was born, a place where I was raised, a place that um, that I call home. And then half of my life is also in another place that has seen me developed and a place that has also provided a community for me and a place that I also call home. And yeah. so, so I hosted a party and you know, set out all the tables, set out all the all the fixings that I could um, have to make it a really good Mexican party. Mm-hmm. And and since I wasn't going to have a fancy dress, I decided that I would splurge and tablecloths and, you know, colorful flowers and all these like wooden utensils and basically shaped gray plates. And so I made it just really fancy place. And I brought my um, my friends to that moment. And I remember talking to my parents before this birthday and um, telling them um, that I was doing this. And I think they totally misunderstood what I was doing because they thought I was having like some sort of like American party. Like now I'm like completely disconnected oh my from Mexico. I'm making this like, you know, um, I'm living most of my life now. It's going to be in the US. Oh my gosh. And I was like, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, <laughs> that's funny. Mm. Yeah, they thought it was totally the opposite of what it was. It's like, no, actually, like, I'm serving Mexican food. I'm not yeah. doing barbecue. I'm not doing, like, <laughs> American food. So. Yeah, that's funny. So so you say, um, as you know, when you were talking about this birthday, I'll read another little quote that you have here, um, if you want to expand on it. But you said, uh, on my 32nd birthday, or my half-and-half half birthday celebration, as I called it, I felt the weight of a permanent separation for which I never planned. A fracture that I was not sure I could mend, one that is growing deeper and longer each day and over which I have no control. I don't know if you want to expand a little bit on that. Like what were your what do you mean by that? What are your emotions behind that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I'm really wrestling and continue to wrestle with what it means to be Mexican, I'm not a citizen in the US, at least not yet. So it's like, I'm not like an American, if you will, in that sense. And I don't know, it it just feels weird to even call myself that way, even call myself American. But um, I think I just like, okay, let me backtrack. So I think this fracture and I don't know, like, I think at the moment when I was writing, it's like, it's like with the passing of time, mm-hmm. every day that passes, I'm spending, like, I, I'm spending more time in the U.S., you know, it's like I, this, this fracture grows deeper from the land that, the land of my ancestors and the land where my parents are. And it's something like, you know, you, you can't, like, I said, terminate the fracture that would mean to stop the passing of time. It's like, there is nothing I can do in that sense. Mm-hmm. But there is also, and I don't think I have fully explored that there, but there is also a way in which, though physically I am really far from this land, mm-hmm. I think there are ways in which emotionally through the traditions that I practice through how I embody what my what this land is about Mm. that I am near and um that I haven't that I haven't left um that I haven't just done away with all of that you know like I joke with my family that I'm I'm more Mexican now that I live in the U.S. than I was in Mexico. You know, it's like I, I crave my food, like Mexican food, way more often. You know, I make nopales and uh, salsa pasilla more often here. Like, I, I didn't really cook much in Mexico because I was so young. But um, I learned to cook in the U.S. partly because I miss the food of, of my growing up, of my childhood. And mm. And I have no one to make that, right? And so it's like there are ways in which I am more connected to what I think 
what I think my family is about, what I think, and by my family, I mean like my, not just my immediate family, but what I think my ancestors would want, you know, mm-hmm. or my ancestors would be, um, would be doing, you know, the way that we, that now that I'm in the U.S., I'm pursuing justice, I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing opportunities for people like me to thrive, etc. Mm-hmm. That, I think, connect me more, even if physically, geographically and time-wise like I am growing more distant yeah there are senses in which I'm also uh, within me that the the tie is growing stronger Mm. that's beautiful yeah and I I can I totally understand what you're what you're referring to and I, I feel the same way in a lot of ways as well like you know I'm I'm far from my culture or far from my community uh my cuban community you know it but in my in my understanding of myself right that grows deeper and there's just so much depth and and richness there and so so yeah it's a it's a weird uh it's a weird juxtaposition but it, it is beautiful and so i think you articulated that really beautifully um so you i know you mentioned that you're not a citizen but i know that you actually you had your citizenship interview this week, correct? I did. Yes. <laughs> so you want to talk to me a little bit about um, your journey to citizenship and just that process? Sure. Yeah. No, it's been it's been quite the process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I um, I really struggled to become a citizen. So I, I, it finally became an opportunity for me this past year. Mm-hmm. So this past year in February was the the first opportunity that became available for me to become a citizen. Like I finally met the time time requirements to be able to apply. And so can you uh, talk just a little bit about that in case people don't know, like what are those time requirements or what are the requirements? Oh, sure. Yeah. There. Um, yeah. So let me backtrack. <laughs> like, mm. I can do a quick, simple overview, but there's like four primary ways in which people migrate to the U.S. And I'll use Alexis Alvateria's terminology because I really like it and it makes sense. It's like blood, sweat, tears. Mm. And the other one is luck. And so blood, like you, you, you can migrate because of your, because of your family, like immediate family members only. So that is like really limited to your parents, like you petitioning for your parents, like a citizen petitioning for parents, uh, spouse, and your children are then under a certain age and that are unmarried are usually the ones that have preference. And then you can migrate through your sweat, which is your work, so that you have to be like highly specialized person, usually like holding an advanced degree mm-hmm. in a certain field that in a position that no other American can take. Like your uh, place of work has to be able to prove that. The Department of Labor has to like certify all these things. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you can also do it through your tiers, right? Like all our humanitarian relief that currently the current administration is seeking to obliterate. And so, this is refugees, asylum seekers uh, would typically come this way and they have to prove that they have been persecuted or have a well founded fear of persecution for five reasons, which is like your political opinion, your religious affiliation, your nationality, your ethnicity, uh, your race, and uh, or a social group. And that's like really hard to prove. And even if you prove it right now, we are just saying we don't want you here. And so we consistently are um, putting different policies in place that are preventing people from exercising their right to seek asylum and that are preventing uh, refugees from entering our country. And so, um, but those are the three ways. Another way that people can come to the U.S. is also through luck. Like there's a, there's a visa lottery that the U.S. offers that's mm-hmm. also been in talks lately about uh, getting rid of it, but it, it seeks to diversify our population. And so, and this is a newly implemented, this, this was not uh, always the case. It's, it's a more recent development that, there's this um, diversity lottery that um, people from countries that are not 
uh, highly represented in the U.S. are able to apply to. So mm-hmm. people of Mexico, China, or India, like we're not eligible to apply for that. And I'm sort of in the work category. That's kind of how I made it, even though, you know, it's like I have aunts and uncles who had lived in San Antonio for a long time that, you know, great grand, not direct aunts, but great grand aunts, great grand uncles that my, my aunts studied with them and lived with them and, and that they still live there. Uh, that doesn't uh, tie me to this land, right? Mm-hmm. Even though my brother, for example, has been here for a longer time than I have been, that that also didn't tie me to the land. But how I was able to start my immigration process was actually after living in the U.S. for many years, studying here, high school and then college, I got a religious visa. And so that's another way in which eventually you're able to migrate. And so this religious visa, I worked for a religious organization. You have to prove that um, that you have taken vows or are associated with this um, with this organization. And the organization also has to be able to prove that they can sustain you, like they can pay you, they can sustain all of your expenses in the U.S. And so that's what makes it really hard for like small churches um, to be able to apply for religious visas for their members. Mm-hmm. So I just happened to learn, work for a large um, organization, a corporation that could provide the financial statements that are needed to do that. So... So a lot of it is privilege, but for for all these reasons, you are granted the ability to apply. And so for me, I had a I had this religious visa that has a tops of five years, and after those five years, you either have to leave the country for a year and then come back on another religious visa, like reapply, mm-hmm. or um, your employer can decide to petition for a more permanent uh, situation, which is the permanent residency. And so you can have permanent residency. And if you obtain permanent residency in this way, um, you have to be a permanent resident for at least five years. You have to have spent at least half of those in the U.S. So you can't just like go back to your country and be a resident, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You have to have at least half of the days in those five years um, in the U.S. Uh, You have to have not committed any crimes in that time. You um, have to be able to prove your loyalty to the U.S. And that's why I really struggled Mm. (laughs) because um, I'm going to pull out here like the oath of citizenship because it was just really hard. And so I just I really wasn't sure that Mm. um, I still struggle with this. I mean, the citizenship application has like ridiculous questions, right? That are that are biased in certain ways. Like, you know, it asks you if you've ever like been a prostitute. Mm. Uh, they ask you things like, "Oh, have you ever been affiliated with a communist party or with a Nazi party?" Mm-hmm. And like, it's just like all this, all these different, um, different questions that think are questionable <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. but then uh then it has this oath part and uh-huh. so you know it's like it asks you like you support the constitution um mm-hmm. and like the second part of it is like when it's a question that they ask you before you take the oath right like it's like are you willing to renounce and abjure absolutely and entirely all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince potentate i can't even pronounce that state sovereignty of, of which the applicant was before a subject or a citizen wow um are you willing to support and defend the constitutions and the laws of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, be true, um, bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and bear arms on behalf of the United States wow. when required by the law, or perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, or perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law? So all these are questions that are asked there, and honestly. A lot of that just felt like pledging some sort of allegiance to me, like in a very (laughs) cultish way (laughs) uh, to to an empire that I don't often support. I also, you know, I don't know that I would bear arms on behalf of the United States. And I said that in my interview. Oh, really? Uh, How did that go? (laughs) The officer said, Okay, like then uh, she just kind of like looked at me and I said, well, I mean, I guess if I had to, <laughs> I, so I'm like, I, I have to betray myself in this. But um, toward the end of our, um, of our time, like she moved on, we were on to other things. And so then she said, you know, when you, when you take the oath, 
you'll have to take the oath fully. So I, wow. I, um, I knew she meant that I needed to be willing to bear arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, wow. And I know that there's very little likelihood, right? That that right, happen. right, right. <laughs> uh, but still, it just yeah. feels weird. Like it betrays who I am. Right, right, right. Um, no, I totally, totally get that. Yeah. So I'm sure that that must have been, it's just a weird thing to have to say and do and take an oath for. Yeah, and renouncing all of your allegiances to all other states, right? Like it's yeah. like, no, I'm a Mexican citizen. I am. I don't want to renounce that. And so, um, mm-hmm. the U.S. won't recognize that nationality or that citizenship, even if I, as as I am deciding to keep it, because I'm not giving that up. But it's just like this weird, like mm-hmm. renouncing all allegiances to anything. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, listen, I like, I really do believe in the kingdom of God. <laughs> beyond this earth and um and goes beyond these physical things and I think it was a difficult thing because yeah I don't know if I want to be so closely or if I want to be so closely tied to a country that while it has given me a lot it's also it's causing so much suffering and hurt mm-hmm. to its own citizens right um yeah. through mass incarceration through not holding people accountable to the law, like particularly those in power, and that is also inflicting hurt and deep suffering all over the world, you know, Mm -hmm. from not allowing asylum seekers to exercise their right to seek protection, to caging and separating families in the U.S. through um, the mass deportation forces, the um, um, detention of immigrants, and through like the intervention of this country and the militarized intervention that it has had all like in many countries of the world. And I don't know that I want to carry that card, you know? Yeah. And at the same time, like I'm faced with like, well, I don't know what the future holds, you know, and I don't know if one day I have I have children, like, I want them to have good opportunities and um, opportunities in that I that I can and I have access to that many don't have access to, which is this opportunity to become a citizen. And um, and also, I by becoming a citizen, like, I have the ability to vote. I have the ability to to have a little bit more influence in, in a democracy that has so much influence all over the world. But... Yeah, but it wasn't easy. Thanks for sharing that. A lot of people don't know that process. And so thank you for spelling that out. And even, you know, sharing just the the difficulty of having to, like, say that you're willing to renounce your, you know, I mean, yeah, it's that's that's heavy stuff. So thanks for sharing that. So you did talk, you mentioned earlier, a little bit of your work now and that you're you're involved in justice work um and you currently are um working with working for sojourners and so if you want to talk a little bit about what sort of work you do now your role um, and yeah and how you are involved in in justice work yeah so at sojourners we um we are putting our faith in action. That's what we do. We do uh, faith in action for social justice, and we seek to inspire hope and build a movement that transforms individuals and communities and the church and beyond. And so I help lead our mobilizing arm. And so many um, may know Sojourners because for nearly 50 years, we have been documenting and commenting on current events uh, from a Christian perspective. Uh, We um, have a great magazine that has been doing that and also our online publications um, that are available. But another part of Sojourners is our mobilizing arm. And so it's called Sojo Action. Mm -hmm. And it's a place where, yeah, like for over 50 50 years, Sojourners um, has like helped different people know how to respond to our biblical call to justice justice um but in Sojourner action is our renewed expression to this call Sojourner action is a sojourners community committed to putting our faith in action for social justice mm. 
and we are forming a network of people that want to be in connection with others that are seeking to make a difference today, particularly in our political system. And so there's different opportunities of engagement for that. So like this year, we are asking people, let me tell you a little bit of like what I what I think we're doing this year. So this year is, uh, it's a key year um, for us because there are a lot of threads uh, upon us. It's one of the most important elections that we mm-hmm. have had in recent years because mm-hmm. Our democracy is, um, there are threats to our democracy. There are uh, very real threats to um, the system that has allowed, that has allowed for the nonviolent transition of power Mm. and that has allowed for the regular person to have influence in how we make laws and how we how we govern ourselves. And so our very own self-determination is at is at risk. Um, and I think it's very important this year that we understand what's at stake, that we understand the tactics that the new, that the current administration is using to keep the power in just some of the very few, and not just the very few, but also the very few that fit um, a certain profile, mm-hmm. and the very few that have a very toxic narrative. And so part of what we are saying in in Sojo Action is first that, well, let me backtrack. I think a lot of us are like, are just tired because we have been for many, many years, like we have seen many of our communities um, be attacked, be devalued mm-hmm. and dehumanized by the different forces that are working against them, whether... I could particularly focus on this because this is what I'm familiar mm-hmm. with. This is kind of my area. My line of work is immigration. And so whether those have been the um, cruel uh, detention, the mass detention and deportation of immigrants, all those forces that have worked against our communities, like we have been fighting them for a long time and we are tired. And many that are not super connected to where the work is being done mm-hmm. are also hopeless and so I think or don't know what to do when they face very real threats as Mm. their communities see greater enforcement happening or as their communities are waiting for family members who came seeking asylum and are not able to cross um, that they have to like remain in Mexico now and have to be separated from them right and so Mm. all these things like just they wear on us and so if you do not know what to do uh, if you do not know how to act like that just wears you down and so part of what we're saying with Sojo Action is that we have the power to ensure our communities grow together and Mm. thrive that within us and with God because we do mobilize from a Christian base we have power to build the just world we desire that we're not alone and together we can see that there are equitable opportunities for all types of people Mm. that none are excluded on the basis of what they look like like or what or where they're from or how did they how they identify or who they love mm. and we see that the current administration has sought to erase our voices mm-hmm. and the narratives that come out of the white house are dehumanizing they are divisive and detrimental to the health of our country they start with spreading fear among our communities mm-hmm. the fear that our families could be torn apart at any moment by the detention deportation and mass incarceration machines fear that people who look like us who have certain skin color or a particular accent can only go so far that we are just made to serve and have no place in society fear that our worth is measured by the size of our pockets and our lives are only as good as we contribute to mm-hmm. economic growth and fear that sharing power across gender ethnicities financial status and religious belief would only mean our destruction and the problem is that this fear is enacted into policies and administrative actions that hurt communities. And so, like, in the last two years, our worst demons have been evoked in many areas, right? And mm-hmm. so 
like I was mentioning earlier, like human relief has practically been eliminated. Like we enacted the um, migrant protection protocols, which are totally poorly named because it's that's deceptive. That's this is a remain in Mexico policy, right? Mm-hmm. That has prevented uh, asylum seekers from coming into the country to seek protection and has let them in limbo, let them behind in limbo in dangerous circumstances at the border, at our southern border in the Mexican side. We just this week we expanded um, the Muslim ban, right? That mm-hmm. it added uh, other countries to these uh, to this list and continues to say that America is only for white people and mm-hmm. continues to say that people can be prevented and excluded from coming into this country just because of their nationality or their religion. Mm-hmm. And you know, just also in this last uh, in this last um, two years, uh, the earth and its resources have been treated as commodities alone, exploited and devalued. Uh, we saw the rollbacks on NEPA, the rollbacks that we're doing for how we um, what we allow to happen in our waters. Women and survivors are not guaranteed the resources they need to thrive. We have not reauthorized VAWA. And there's deliberate cruelty all over immigration policy. There is the neglect for the most destitute in our communities as we try to attack healthcare and as we try to to put even uh, different conditions for who can migrate to the U.S. If you've ever received assistance, we don't want you. We're saying this country is not only for the white, but also for the rich. and also, of course, the mili- the, our militarized intervention strategies. No one is seeking to build peace, but we are, like, we don't have a deliberate peace-building strategy. We just have this militarized intervention strategy that we do. And, and we see that with just the recent developments in Iran. And, and it's like, all of these things are happening. And so when you, like, just, like, look at that list like it's like it's it's exhausting (laughs) our brains are tired and if we don't recognize that we can be together that we can do something that it's not all left up to these ideologies that are enacting policies like if we recognize like that is that is not the end that is not Mm. all there is like there is a god who is at work and a god who has consistently intervened in very peculiar moments in history Mm. and who has consistently um it's consistently looking for the flourishing and the goodness of people and that is not abandoned this this place Mm. you know we know that when communities come together to recognize honor and protect the image of god in each other and the earth we are better for it yeah um so anyways, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit of what we're doing is equipping people to know this, you know, like yeah. you are not alone. There are ways in which we can fight. And then um, part of what we are going to do this year is we're inviting people to pray. Like we believe that part of what will actually change things is not just prayers, like for the sake of prayers, but really what would it look like for us to pray Knowing that that God is really up to something, that God can intervene, that God hears the voices of his people, that God cares for those that are in particularly destitute circumstances. What would it look like to also pray to sustain the life that is being produced in different communities, to mm-hmm. to let that flourish, like to to sustain the work of goodness, to sustain the work of justice, like pray praying to really lift that up and praying against the forces that are trying to kill and destroy and steal, like the forces that are trying to separate families, praying against the forces that are trying to to tell us that only certain people with a particular skin color, mm-hmm. a particular ideology, and a particular income are valuable, like praying against those things. So we're inviting people to pray. We have a, a pledge that... Um, an invitation to, for people to pledge that has gone out yesterday and that will be continue to be put out um, throughout Lent. We're inviting people to pray and then seek ways to repent. Like, how do we help our nation turn around? How do we help our our communities make a step in the other direction? And so we're asking people to have courageous conversations and we're asking people to take action. And so at different points in time, and so it's three things we are praying we are having courageous conversations with people in our communities, with mm-hmm. our elected officials, and then we're taking action when action is needed. Mm-hmm. And so 
yeah I'm gonna stop there because I feel like I've sucked for a long time <laughs> no no that's I was literally just thinking I'm like I'm like man this is so wonderful like you know you're just like I don't even have to like try and probe anything out of you I'm like I love this <laughs> if only all my interviews were like this <laughs> no no I mean I think that that is I mean so good I one of the questions that I was going to ask you was the role of hope in the justice movement, but I think that you've you've articulated that, like you've just articulated the the banding together, the you know us needing each other, the community, and the fact that God is one hundred percent involved in this movement and in the movement of of bringing justice uh, to communities that need it, and and you know God is in the midst of that, you know, and a, a lot of times it's I know it's easy to not to forget that but to be so consumed with the work you know that um that you do that you you feel the weight of that you feel the weight of the hopelessness have you have you read miguel de la torre's uh work on a theology of hopelessness i have not it's been recommended to me yeah Mm -hmm. i've let me know when you do because i've been i've been really wanting to talk to people about it because it is so um it, it, yeah, I mean, it is so good. And he almost is like, we need to, like, one of the things that he says is that we, we actually need to crucify hope to allow, or crucify, yeah, crucify hope. And through the crucifying of hope, we can see it actually resurrect, you know, and like we can, we crucify the, the, the cheap hope that a lot of, that unfortunately we see in a lot of like Christian dialogue and a lot of God talk, you know, like the, the shallow hope that it's like, oh, well, you know, just have hope. But what does that really mean, right? <laughs> you know, um, because it's not it's not that simple to just well, because that is a very privileged thing to to say that it's it's easy for the privileged to have hope. Sure. But it's yeah. So anyway, I I do I do appreciate that that it's not just a shallow hope, but that it's a hope in action. It's a hope in community. It's a hope in you know all of that. Yeah, I have something on that, but I think yeah, like I think you're. I love what you're saying about like yeah, crucifying like this like empty hope in order for like like true hope to mm. be resurrected because i think like i think we forget like hope is for the hopeless you know it's like right. jesus came for the sake like the those that are well have no need of a doctor right. like it is the hopeless that need hope it mm. is the hopeless that can hope mm. you know it's like otherwise the hope that you have is not is just empty right like right. it's like kind of what you're saying and part of what i've seen um or part of places places where I've seen a lot of hope um it's places that are also in the most desperate or most um I don't want to say desperate but in the most exposed circumstances so let me tell you a little bit yeah vulnerable circumstances Mm -hmm. like um one of the places where I found the most hope in the movement like in the immigration immigrant rights movement is an organization called United We Dream and one of the leaders of United We Dream is uh, Grecia Martinez. Grecia Martinez and Grisa is, uh, oh, she's just an incredible human being. You know, it's, it's a network of documented people, um, people who are in this new administration with the newest developments mm-hmm. and potential, and very, very real um, potential threats of deportation. And whose families have mixed status, right? And so family members that, uh, that are uh, at risk of also being deported and who are also one of the most inspiring places, like are mobilizing young people all over the nation, um, rallying around, fighting for protections for children, for, for now adults who were brought here to this mm. country as children and their families and beyond, right? Um, for their communities to stay together and thrive. But it is this that, like documented youth that are orchestrating what they call a joyful rebellion. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing to watch that on the night, um, I was with many of them on the the night of the uh, Supreme Court cases that were heard um, on November 12th this past year. And it was just beautiful that even though we don't know what the outcome is, like there is nothing that, you know, like we could still have a really bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that yet they are, the, the ability to bring a thousand people together, yeah. you know, around this and to, to keep to keep exercising, like to keep lifting up their voices and exercising their rights to petition 
the government is just beautiful to watch and to do so with hope with a hope that is like really really full mm-hmm. um so anyways all that to say is like that's like it's just been a source of of so much hope like any time that that i feel discouraged or that i'm like and they feel discouraged too it's like there's something about being together mm. and knowing that yes even though we don't have the victory or we don't have what we want there's still everyone's still facing threat but we're working like we're working on this yeah um give so much hope so anyways i'll stop <laughs> <laughs> no you're good i do love so much of what i'm hearing and in so much of what you've been sharing whether it's the work that you're currently doing um your journey of whether it's journey of citizenship journey of understanding of uh feeling that feeling those feelings of fitting fitting in or whatever it may be i feel like so much is is really rooted and grounded in the idea of like we're together in this like it's a togetherness um and i don't want to just use the word community because i know that word is overused but it is a kinship a togetherness Hmm. whether that's you know in the justice movement whether that's yeah, I mean, in all in all aspects of it, I think that that it's just so much of a rootedness in that, and so, yeah, thank you for just being able to draw from that so well and 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 point us all to that um, in such a beautiful way. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. This was so delightful. Yeah, and yeah, awesome. I'm glad we got to talk. Me too. Thank you, Andrea.